Hebrews 9, sin and judgment. Hebrews 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, once a year, only the high priest enters, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink, and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, But through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, 
This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should suffer He should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood, not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Amen. This chapter is very significant in the series on sin and judgment. It mentions sins several times. The question is, how are we actually forgiven of sins? And how is it, according to chapter 9, verse 27, that we are prepared for the judgment? After we die, are we prepared for the judgment? This chapter is very significant in establishing the point establishing the doctrine that there is one gospel from Genesis to Revelation. There is only one way of salvation by faith in the death and resurrection of Christ from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. There is no period of time in the Bible as it is describing all of human history. There is no period of time in all of human history where people are saved in any other way. They must believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. This is the only way. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The only way of eternal life is to know the only true God through Jesus Christ, sent by God the Father. If we don't know Christ, we do not know God the Father, and there is no eternal life. Yes, and even the Old Testament has this explanation that the scriptures of the Old Testament teach the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5. 
Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. The Apostle Paul, in verse 1, says this is the Gospel. He had preached, now he's repeating it. And he says in verses 3 and 4 that the Scriptures, the Scriptures of the Old Testament, declare, proclaim, predict, prophesy, explain, exposit, teach the death and resurrection of Christ. This is found, these doctrines are found on the pages of the Old Testament, and therefore anyone in the Old Testament who was saved was saved by anticipating the death and resurrection of Christ for his forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Now, since he has accomplished it, Christ has accomplished dying and rising again, it is announced as accomplished for us to believe. In the past, it was in anticipation. Now, it is through accomplishment that it is announced. But both ways, it is announced that he must die, and whoever hears the gospel must believe it. Believe that Jesus died and rose again for the forgiveness of his sins and eternal life. Why is this such a significant belief or doctrine of Scripture? Because the Apostle Paul tells us in many places, just like he did in 1 Corinthians 15, he tells us in Galatians chapter 1 that if anyone deviates from this gospel, one true gospel, he is actually preaching a different gospel and an accursed gospel. It's deserving a curse, it is different, it is false, it is destructive, and it will not lead to salvation. In Galatians 1, Galatians 1, 6, 1 verses 6 to 10, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Why is it in verse 10 that the apostle asks if he's seeking the favor of men or God? Is he pleasing men or Christ? Why would he say it? Because if there are two or 2,000 or 200,000 different Gospels, then he is going to be pleasing men. Different ways to be saved. 
saved by good works, saved by faith in God as creator, so on and so forth. This is what most people believe. Even most people in Christian churches. That's what they believe. They believe a different, accursed gospel. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. And therefore, they distort the scriptures to their own destruction. 2 Peter 3, 14 to 18. What do they do? Here are some common beliefs related to individuals in the Old Testament. This is what they say. They say that Abel was saved by offering a better sacrifice than Cain. That's how he was saved. Not because Abel anticipated the death and resurrection of Christ and believed in it, but because he offered a better sacrifice. They even have the audacity to say that Cain himself was saved. Cain himself was saved because he says to God, my punishment is too great to bear. As though he's repenting. No, he's whining. He's whining like a crybaby. That's what Cain was doing. He was not repenting, but that's what they say. Cain repented. What about Noah? How do they take Noah? They say Noah was saved because he expected in faith for the flood to come and he prepared the ark so that he and his household could be spared from the flood. That's how Noah was saved. How was Abraham saved, they say? They say Abraham was saved by believing the promise of God that God would miraculously give him a son, Isaac, through Sarah. He was saved by believing that. Not by believing in the death and resurrection of Christ, but by believing that promise that he would have a son through Sarah at the age, Sarah at 90 and Abraham at age 100. Because he believed in that miracle, Therefore, Abraham was saved. Abraham did not believe in Jesus Christ, in the death and resurrection of Christ, not at all, according to them. Also, if we continue, we go on from Abraham. How was Moses saved? Moses was saved because he believed in the God of the Exodus. He believed in the God of sacrifices, of animal sacrifices. Not because Moses look forward to the death and resurrection of Christ. That's how Moses was saved, and that's what he was teaching the people to do. Offer the animal sacrifices as your good works, and you will be saved. That's what they say. By the way, who are the they? The they, in modern days, they are called dispensationalists. Dispensationalists. Dispensational meaning that in different periods of time, God has different expectations of the way of salvation depending on when you live, where you live, who you are, so on. That's what dispensationalism basically is teaching. It's more than that, but fundamentally in reference to salvation, that's the reason they are known and they self-identify as dispensationalists. But that's not in the Bible. In ancient times, it was called Marcionism. Marcion, because there was a man about AD 150, about 50 years after the death of the Apostle John, who spread a heresy which has many facets, many features similar to dispensationalism. 
And in church history, the theologians and the historians know it as Marcionism. And since the 1800s, we know it as dispensationalism. It's very common. Many, many people, in fact, most people in most churches believe in the ancient heresy, destructive heresy of Marcionism. They still believe it. And so let me proceed. In After Moses, then Rahab. How was Rahab the harlot in Joshua chapter 2? How was she saved according to them? She was saved by believing that the God of Israel is the creator and sustainer of the earth, heaven and earth. That she believed he's the creator and sustainer. She had no knowledge of Christ. She did not believe in the coming death of Christ. Nothing like that. That's how she was saved. We go on from there to other, a couple of more examples. How was Nebuchadnezzar saved? How was Nebuchadnezzar saved? They say Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, was saved by the end of Daniel chapter 4 because he praises the God of Daniel and he realizes that the God of Daniel had humbled him for seven years and then restored his sanity. He was sane and then insane and then became sane again with a seven-year period of insanity. Because Nebuchadnezzar recognized the sovereignty of the God of Daniel, they say, he was saved. Not because Daniel or anybody else preached Jesus Christ to Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, there's no evidence that Nebuchadnezzar was saved, but that's what they say. And they say it because they want a vague belief in a vague God in order to be saved. Because they want most people, if not everyone, to be saved. And also, in the book of Jonah. How were the Ninevites saved in the book of Jonah? The Ninevites, according to Luke eleven twenty nine to 32 they were, in fact, saved by the preaching of Jonah. But they say Jonah merely preached that 40 days and then Nineveh would be overthrown. And because they didn't want the physical judgment of God, they repented of sins, and that's why they're saved. They repented of sins to avert the physical judgment of God. They were devoid of any spiritual knowledge and especially devoid of belief in the death and resurrection of Christ. They didn't believe in that at all. These are just some of the examples that the heretics who deny one gospel present. They are very prolific and verbose in insisting that there were many things that people believed and still today can believe to be saved apart from accurate faith, accurate knowledge, and true faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. In the time of the apostle in Hebrews 9, the Jews were doing the same thing. The Jews in the time of the Apostle in Hebrews chapter 9 were doing the same thing. They were trusting in animal sacrifices. This is why he insists, starting in chapters 9 and 10, especially in chapters 9 and 10, not starting, but especially in chapters 9 and 10, 
that he is emphasizing the fact that the blood of animals never took away anybody's sins. Never, ever took away anybody's sins. That's what he emphasizes. To note, then, what is it, what is the basic and fundamental point we must keep in mind when we read chapter 9? It actually goes from chapter 9 and into 10, verse 18, or 10, 25. This exposition of animal sacrifices in comparison to the sacrifice of Christ, Christ on the cross. Cross. What is the fundamental point we must keep in mind always when we think about, read about, hear about the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament? What is the basic point we must understand in order to understand the Old Testament correctly and even this letter to the Hebrew Christians correctly? What is the basic point? Keep this in mind whenever you read or hear about the animal sacrifices. And not only the animal sacrifices, but the festivals, the people, the saints. The fundamental point has to do with imagery or illustrations. In biblical terms, copies and true things. Biblical terms, shadow and substance. Shadow and reality. In biblical terms, terms, type and fulfillment of type. The Bible uses these words in different places. For example, even in our passage, we read in 9.23, he says, copies of the things in the heavens. Verse 24, the true one. The copies of the things in the heavens. The copies are on the earth. The true one is in heaven. Or chapter 10, verse 1. He says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. This is the basic aspect of interpretation we should always keep in mind when we're dealing with these kinds of rituals and symbols of the Old Testament. That they were symbols, types, they were not the source of salvation, but illustrations, a multiplicity of illustrations delivered to the people for them to understand aspects of the person of Christ and the work of Christ. They were many, numerous illustrations to show them in anticipation how Jesus Christ would fulfill everything. There is a common, somewhat common, New Testament verse, John 1.29. We know the content, if not the reference. John 1.29, John the Baptist, before Jesus ever died, he saw Jesus approaching And he said to the people, he said, Behold, or look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why did John say it? Because John understood this fundamental principle of the types, the shadows, 
the illustrations of the Old Testament. The animal lamb was a picture, was a depiction of the coming sacrifice of Christ. And Christ is the ultimate, the perfect, the supreme lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is before Jesus even died on the cross. John the Baptist is preaching like that. In fact, Moses preaches that way from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Isaiah preaches that throughout the book of Isaiah. Jeremiah preaches that throughout the book of Jeremiah, so forth. It is everywhere in the Old Testament, this concept, this principle of interpretation. If we keep that in mind, then salvation is never by vagaries. Salvation is never by good works. Salvation is never by conducting rituals. Salvation is never by one's own virtues. It's never that way. It's only and always only through true faith in the true reason why Jesus died and rose again. That is the only way. Hebrews 9 stresses this. Now, let's return and notice in verses 1 to 5, firstly, verses 1 to 5, he mentions various furnishings of the tabernacle and temple, the various furnishings or furniture within the tabernacle and temple. He says, now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread, that this is called the holy place. And behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. He tells us that these furnishings were in the tabernacle and temple. In the main building of the temple and tabernacle, there were two main rooms. One room which was frequented by many of the priests. The other room, the inner room, was not frequented by all of the priests, but by the high priest. He was the one who entered there. The main one that was most often used is called the holy place. In verse 3, the holy of holies. That's a Hebrew idiom meaning the most holy place. In the most holy place, there were other furnishings set there. And there was limited access to both of those rooms. The common people could not come. Not even the king of Israel, no matter how great he was, even David, Solomon, they could not enter these places and conduct the rituals. They could not enter and they could not conduct the rituals. That's how sacred it was, designated only according to the will of God, who could enter, who could not enter, how they should enter, how they should not enter, 
All of that was stipulated. All of that was explained. We might say, well, what do these things mean? What do the furnishings mean? Well, our apostle tells us, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So since he's not speaking in detail, we cannot speak in detail right now. But just take for an example one simple one. This is an easy illustration. The lamp stand. The lamp stand was always supposed to be lit. What does the lamp stand represent? John 8:12. Jesus John 8:12 and 9:5. Jesus did not by accident call himself the light of the world. He called himself in John 8:12 and 9:5. He said, "I am the light of the world." He didn't do it by accident. He did it because the lamp stand represents him as the light of the world. That they should look to him through his word for their light, for their salvation. He is the light, just as it says in 1 John 1, 5, God is light. This is the kind of illustration the furnishings were meant to present to the people. The people were not supposed to be obsessed with the lampstand, the beauty of the lampstand, the warmth of the light, or the use of the light in the tabernacle. Those things were incidental. Those were not essential, they were incidental. What's essential is knowing that Jesus, the coming Jesus, His incarnation, He is the light of the world. This is what the furnishings were intended to teach the people, to remind them whenever they saw them, whenever they thought about them, whenever they read about them. Verses 6 to 10. 9 6. Now, when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, once a year, only the high priest enters, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various, various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until a time of Reformation. There is an explanation in verses 6 and 7 that the outer tabernacle, the, the holy place, that's the outer one. The inner tabernacle, that is the most holy place, the holy of holies, that there was certain privileges granted to the priests to conduct the rituals of divine worship, the way God told them to do it. But they did it with blood, and they did it according to God's prescriptions, God's commandments. They were not supposed to do it in any other way. 
And the priests, even, verse 7 says, he was so deficient, he was so weak, he was so incapable of his own salvation, let alone the salvation of other people, that his own need of salvation is represented in verse 7 when it says, he offers for himself. He offers an animal sacrifice for himself. Signifying what? Symbolizing what? Typifying what? That he himself is a sinner and needs the grace of God through the death and resurrection of Christ. So he offers an animal to represent that. He should know from his own teacher, going all the way back to Moses, and even then going all the way back to Noah, Noah's sons, and all the way back to Adam and Eve, and Abel and Cain. That this is the truth of the matter. That the animals are offered because the worshiper himself, including the priests, have no salvation apart from Christ. This is a way of signifying. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. There's another synonym of what we've been saying. Shadow, very form of things, type, fulfillment. Right here he says, signifying. To signify, we see the word sign right there, correct? The word for signification or to signify is right here. Also, we notice in verse 9, he uses another word, a synonym of to signify, which is to symbolize. He says, verse 9, which is a symbol. They were symbols. Phone one connected. They were symbols or illustrations of the coming sacrifice of God in Christ. Notice too, he says that while this is happening, it's supposed to happen temporarily. That is the first covenant, meaning the Mosaic covenant, that it was supposed to happen between Moses and the death of Christ. That's the period in which it was supposed to happen. That's why they kept offering sacrifices. It says, in verse 8, the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. It is disclosed, it is witnessed when Jesus dies and rises again. That's when it is disclosed. He's not saying disclosed in terms of preaching prophecy, prediction, announcement. He's not talking about it that way. He's talking about disclosed in the sense of accomplished on the earth. He had not come into the world yet. He did not die on the cross yet. And he did not rise from the dead yet. These events had not yet occurred. That's why they were still offering sacrifices. But keep the sacrifices in perspective, he says. Verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. 
cannot make him perfect in conscience. How is it that the guilt of our sins in our conscience cannot be removed when we offer an animal? That's not the way, he says. What is the way? Chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. 10, 1 to 4. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. His argument is, if the animal sacrifices were sufficient, then why do the worshipers have to repeatedly offer the animals? Why not just one time? Because he says there in verse 2, once. Why was it not just one animal offered and then there, salvation is guaranteed to the worshiper, including the priests? But because there were daily sacrifices all day long, there were daily sacrifices, there were weekly sacrifices, there were monthly sacrifices, there were festival sacrifices, there were annual sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, why so many sacrifices constantly if it only takes one animal for your forgiveness of sins and for your conscience to be freed from the guilt of sin? That's his argument in chapter 10, 1 to 4. But it was repeated, continual, in abundance, a multiplicity of sacrifices because they were simply illustrative. They were symbolic. They were not for their cleansed conscience. Their consciences were still dead, as he said with Dead Works 9.14. They, verse 10, were only food, drink, various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. How could eating some food, eating a piece of bread, eating a piece of meat save you from your sin? How could drinking a little bit of wine save you from your sins? How could various washings, yes, they had to immerse themselves after certain things had happened to them. They had to immerse themselves in water, come up out of the water, and then they would have been bodily cleansed bodily clean or have bodily cleansing. That's what would have happened to them. He says they are regulations for the body. Well, what about the soul? Because there was nothing in being dipped in water that would save anybody's soul. But it was a symbol. Symbol of the death and resurrection of Christ. And he says too, verse 10, it was all imposed by God until a time of Reformation. Now is the time of Reformation. After the first coming of Christ, the time of Reformation has occurred, which means the rituals are abolished, but not the moral law. 
The moral, ethical law is not abolished, but the ritual law, sacrificial law, ceremonial law, different terms describing the same thing, that law is abolished. This is what he means in verse 10. We know he doesn't mean the moral or ethical law because in chapter 13, primarily in the first part of the chapter, the first half of the chapter, he has moral exhortations. He has things that we should do ethically and things we should not do ethically. He tells us so in chapter 13, particularly chapter 13 and verses 1 to 7. 13, 1 to 7, he says, 13, 1, let love of the brethren continue. What is that? That's a restatement of the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Verse 3, remember the prisoners. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. Verses 5 and 6, let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Verse 7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Notice he says the word conduct. That's the way we live, our morality, our ethics. Those are not abolished. And there are many examples of these in the Old Testament and New Testament. It's the ritual law that was imposed until a time of Reformation. And that time was the first coming of Christ. That's the time of Reformation. If we don't comprehend it, then we denigrate the death of Christ. If we do not believe it, we are blaspheming the death of Christ, blaspheming the blood of Christ. We are insulting the spirit of grace. If we do not comprehend this distinction, and this would be a gross sin It would be unforgivable, as he says in 10.26, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Nothing but only judgment if we keep reading 10.26 to 31. Let's continue in chapter 9. 9.11. 9.11 to 14. Now, Christ has come. Remember he said time of reformation? We know he means the coming of Christ, first coming of Christ, because of his explanation from verses 11 to 28. He says the following, 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Christ appeared. 
He is the high priest, the supreme high priest from the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews chapter 7. The good things to come, that means the good things of eternal life, because he says eternal redemption, verse 12. He says that Christ entered the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. Moses and Moses craftsmen made the tabernacle and then Solomon and Solomon's craftsmen made the temple. They did it according to God's commandments, God's regulations, exactly as God said. And so they didn't do anything wrong. It's not as though they were imperfect or corrupt or wrongly constructed. Nothing like that. There was no deficiency like that. The deficiency was, how could we think that something men do can save us from sins? That is the problem. But this is the common problem. Most people think something we do will save us from our sins. Our good works, our goodwill, our free will, something we do will save us from our sins. But here the argument is, Jesus entered into heaven where we have a greater, more perfect tabernacle which no man made. Of course that would be superior because it's in heaven. No man made it. And therefore, the earthly one is symbolic of the heavenly one. The earthly one is a copy of the true one, the greater, more perfect one in heaven. And it wasn't with the blood of goats and calves. It wasn't the goats, the bulls, and the heifer. There was nothing like that. It was his own blood. The blood of Christ, that's the source of salvation. It says, if the others, the animals, cleansed the flesh to make them able to do certain things in the temple, in the tabernacle, so forth. How much more, 14 says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It's the blood of Christ, the eternal spirit, the Holy Spirit, who was working through the death of of Christ and the shed blood of Christ. He offered his blood without blemish, just as the animals were supposed to be without blemish, no defect. They could not be sick or blind or lame. They had to be unblemished animals. Why? Because Jesus was, in terms of sin, unblemished. He only, with his blood, can cleanse the conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Our works, even our righteous deeds before our conversion, God considers filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6 and 7. They are filthy rags. Even the things we do that are righteous, meaning in terms of civil life, in terms of being civilly righteous in society. That is, there are men who go to work. They provide for their families but they're all unbelievers. 
That's doing some, something good and righteous. It's good for society for men to work, provide income for their families, and then to support their families, come home to their families, rather than to the casino or to the bar or somewhere else. They come home to their families, and then when they come home to their families, they spend the evening with their families, eat dinner together, and provide um, fellowship, comfort, assistance to whatever the needs of the family are, right? That's civil righteousness. But many unbelievers do it in Christianity and outside of Christianity. But in terms of God, they are dead works. Just because a man, a husband, a father is industrious doesn't mean his industry is his ticket to heaven. doesn't work that way. They are dead works in the sight of God because the only living work, the only life is in the death of Christ. That's the only way. To cleanse our conscience, the death of Christ. Then we have the ability to serve the living God upon this conversion. But someone may ask, someone may ask, what about in the Old Testament? Does it cover... Does the death of Christ cover Abel's sins, Adam and Eve's sins, Abel's sins? Does it cover Enoch's sins, Noah's sins, Abraham's sins, Moses, so forth? Does it cover their sins? Yes. Verses 15 and following, particularly at the beginning, 15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place, for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when... Every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law. He took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Verse 15 says that Christ is the mediator of this new covenant. And he inaugurated this new covenant by his death, since a death has taken place. But it was also taken place for the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. In the Old Testament, in that first covenant in the Old Testament, all of those saints, they had their sins forgiven by the death of Christ. That's how they were forgiven. Not because of good works, not their goodwill, not their free will, not their rituals, not because they were better than their neighbors, nothing like that. That's not the way they were saved. They were saved by redemption in the death of Christ. 
But it's only for those who are called, it says, who have been called. There, that's a, a reference to the elect, to the elect or the chosen of God. Not that we choose God, but the chosen of God. God chooses us and for salvation or reprobation. And it says, called, the called receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. The called. Only the called. Such, uh, for example, Romans 8.28, Romans 8.28, And God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. It says, those who are called according to His purpose. But is this calling a general calling? like a general preaching the gospel and calling people to repent? Or is it a special, particular, effective, elective calling? It's the latter, the second. It is the special, particular, specific, elective calling. Because it says, those who are, Romans 8.28, who are called according to His purpose... They are saved. How do we know they're saved? Verses 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. The ones who love God, truly love God, are those who are called. And then he goes farther back in time. In fact, he goes to eternity. Those whom God foreknew, not foresaw, but foreknew in terms of loved in advance before the foundation of the world, he predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ. And the ones he predestined, he called. The ones he called, he justified. The ones he justified, he glorified. Therefore, this redemption in Hebrews 9.15 is for the elect. But one might ask, one might concede and then ask, yes, the blood of Christ covered the sins of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, and all the rest, did they actually know that Jesus was going to come into the world to die for their sins? Did they actually know that and believe in that to have the blood of Christ forgive them? The answer, yes. The answer is a definite yes. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 13.8, the same yesterday today and forever. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, 24 to 26 on Moses. We'll use one example, the example of Moses. Hebrews 11, 24. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, 
considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses had faith. Faith in what? Faith in Christ. Christ is mentioned specifically in verse 26. 11.26 Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches. The reproach of Christ is equivalent to faith in the death of Christ. The death of Christ was greater riches for Moses than the treasures of Egypt. A parallel statement about the reproach is mentioned in chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 to 14. Hebrews 13, 7 to 14. Well then, he says that a death has to occur. This is his main argument in 9.16 to 22. But the question we asked earlier was, did Moses understand and teach the people? According to Hebrews 9.16 to 22, the answer is, of course he did. Moses was teaching them about the blood, the blood of the animals. He was teaching them that it was necessary for a covenant to be started, to be in effect, by the death of the one that made it. And therefore, he was not telling the people that the animals are going to save you from your sins. He was telling the people the coming Christ will save you from your sins, just like I believe in the coming Christ. You people must also believe in the coming of Christ, and this blood is a constant reminder of us to anticipate His coming. Remember, we already saw in Hebrews 11, 24-26, that He believed in the death of Christ. So that when He is preaching about the blood, He's not preaching just the blood of animals, He's preaching the blood of Christ. Didn't it say in Psalm 40 that no animals are good, only the blood of Christ? Yes. Psalm 40, Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. Psalm 40, verse 6. This psalm is written by David. Psalm is written by David. See, under the title Psalm 40. Written by David. David lived four to five hundred years after Moses. After the whole nation has a system of sacrificial offerings. David is living in the middle of that period. A thousand years before Christ. Four, five hundred years after Moses. And this is what David writes in Psalm 40, verse 6. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. We said David composed this. David wrote this. But we did not say, verses 6 to 8, that David is the speaker. Who is the speaker and to whom is he speaking? According to Hebrews 10, 5 to 10, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 to 10, 
Jesus, the Son of the Father, is speaking to the Father. And here, the saints, the Christians of the Old Testament, have a clear indication that even though Moses Moses told them to offer sacrifices, meal offerings, another word for grain offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, these were all required in Leviticus chapters 1 to 9. They were all required. There's no doubt they were required. There's no doubt they were desired by God. But in what sense were they required and desired by God at that time? As symbols, as types. But they were never desired or required as the sacrifices or the sacrifice that would forgive them of their sins, the sins of their soul, and grant them forgiveness and eternal life. It was never. That's why here, the Son of the Father is speaking to the Father and He says, You, Father, do not desire, you do not require any of these animals. What do you require? Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Here Jesus is saying, through the pen of David, Jesus is saying that he knows that the animals will not forgive them. It takes the death of Christ, the body of Christ, the physical body of Christ to die. Because the animals are insufficient, therefore I come into the world in a physical body that is perfect or sinless and will die for their sins. This is the will of God. This, as we said, is repeated in Hebrews 10, 5 to 10. For example, Hebrews 10, 10 says, By this will, remember he said, I delight to do your will, O God. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And this is what Moses was teaching the people, according to Hebrews 9, 15 to 22. Finally, 23 to 28. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should suffer or offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own, Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who who eagerly await him. He repeats the argument he made earlier in verses 11 to 14. In 23 to 24, he says that 
Jesus appeared in the presence of God, having shed his blood and risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. He is in the presence of God where he has accomplished, proven that he his sacrifice was the real and only true way of salvation. Also, in contrast, verses 25 to 26, he says, in contrast to the repeated sacrifices of animals. And if we have not read the Old Testament carefully, we do not comprehend how numerous, how uncountable it is, the numbers of animals and the frequency with which those animals were constantly brought to the tabernacle and temple. It is hard to comprehend when they were doing it faithfully. Not at at every period of time were they doing it, but if they were to do it faithfully from the beginning until the sacrifice of Christ or the destruction of the temple in AD 70, if they were, it's hard to comprehend. That's why when he says in 25, he should offer himself often, nor was it that he should offer himself often. In verse 26, otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. That's not the way Jesus suffered. That's not the way Jesus offered himself. It was only one time. One time and one time only. We said from 10.10, once for all. Look at 10.11. 10.11 to 14. Chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Only one sacrifice of Christ. Only one. Now, that itself predicted, such as Psalm 40, 6-8, and there are other references. But this sacrifice, only one time, it should have been a clear, a clear exposition, a clear explanation to the people that they should believe in the coming death of Christ. Because it would only take place one time. And it would be Christ the Christ of God, the Son of God, the Son of the Father, descending from heaven temporarily during His incarnation and then ascending back into heaven after His death and resurrection. By the way, Roman Catholicism, the Pope in Roman Catholicism and all of his underlings, the priests, the local priests, They are offering repeated sacrifices. And they say that the bread and the wine or cup that they partake, they 
are the actual body and blood of Christ. Not symbolically so, not as a representation, but they say literally. They believe what's called in their theology transubstantiation. The substance of Christ's body and blood are transferred to the bread and the cup when the priest or the pope blesses the bread and the cup. It's the actual body and blood of Christ. Actually, they speak with Satan's forked tongue, a serpent's forked tongue, because they repeatedly say it is an actual sacrifice, but if you read carefully, they'll also call it an unbloody sacrifice. How could it be the actual sacrifice every time they pray over the elements, and then at the same time be an unbloody sacrifice? Because if it were literally the body and blood of Christ, then we would be drinking the blood of Christ, literally. But they're calling it unbloody. So is it literal or not? And that's not just a theological, uh, it's not theological hair splitting. It is, one, a deceit from the papacy, one. Number two, it is a contradiction in their own words. It's a contradiction. So they are incredulous or we cannot believe them, should not believe them because they're contradicting themselves. But number three, most importantly, it contradicts these numerous passages that say he does not suffer often since the foundation of the world, but only one time. Only one time. And anything in addition to one time is blasphemy against the blood of Christ. Catholics must be told this that they are blaspheming. They think they are properly following the apostles, but no, they are blaspheming Christ and will not go to heaven, nor will they go to purgatory because there is no such place. Speaking of purgatory or judgment, 27 to 28. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. After men die, there is judgment. There is no reincarnation, no transmigration of the soul. There is no extinction. There is nothing like that. There is judgment. We either will be freed from condemnation Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, either freed from it or we will experience the severe, fierce wrath of God for all eternity. That's the judgment that is to come. Christ came to prepare us for that day of judgment. And to prepare us for that day of judgment, he offered his body once to bear the sins of many. To bear the sins of many. It doesn't say to bear the sins of every human being who's ever lived. But many. Many of the called. Verse 15. The elect. But the second time when he comes into the world, his return, 
It is for us. He's not going to pay for sins. There's no need because he's already done that. He's going to come to receive us. Those of us who eagerly await him. Shall we be like that? Always and only trusting, believing in the death and resurrection of Christ. And anticipate him coming again because we are truly forgiven and he will say to us, Matthew 25, 21, Well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. That's the kind of eager expectation we should have. Knowing that we correctly understand the first coming, we shall enjoy his second coming. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.